Well, this is going to be a little challenging, but I want you to go through an exercise with me. I want you to think about a rivalry that you've experienced in your life, okay? You may have to go back to high school. I remember when I was in high school, I went to Coronado High School, and we certainly had a rivalry. In fact, this last week, we had a staff lunch, and it was Mark Hardy who brought up that rivalry and reminded me that the Monterey Plainsman baseball team constantly beat the Coronado Mustangs. And he was right, and it was painful, and it brought back that rivalry again, right? So I want you to think about a rivalry. Here's an example that maybe we can relate to in our community. I want you to consider just with me in your imagination. This is the only way it will happen, but just work with me on this. But let's imagine a day in which Texas Tech University and Texas University merged into one single institution. You with me? I know, it's painful. It hurts me to even say the words come out of my mouth. So these two institutions with the long history of competition now form into one single entity. And let's just say for the sake of conversation that they'll continue to play sports, but instead of being two separate teams, they now have to form one team. So the Red Raiders and the Longhorns must learn how to play together. Not only that, they've got to come up with a new school colors. They've got to come up with a new logo, a new mascot. Oh, stop that. All those traditions and history that took place in these individual schools that they hold so dear now must go away. And they must form new traditions. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty hard for me to imagine. <laughs> in fact, I think if we're honest with ourselves, if this were something that really tried to take place, it just wouldn't go very well, right? Is that fair? Well, if you can imagine some of the angst and difficulty, some of the passion of the conversations that not, might take place in this scenario, if you can picture that in your mind, then you'll be able to appreciate what we will look at in our passage this morning. Because the Jews and the Gentiles have always been on opposing teams. But with the introduction of the church, now these two opposing teams have to learn how to work together. Not only that, each of them have long-held traditions. They come from very different cultures. They bring in very different experiences. And now, all of a sudden, they got to learn how to work together, to live together, to be in community with one another. And it won't be an easy path. In fact, as we'll see this morning, there'll be some very emotion-filled debates. But the example particularly the example that we see this morning in our passage, will set a precedent for the family of God from that day forward. And the bottom line is this. In and of themselves, if it's up to the people to figure out how to make this work, it will not go well. Only God can create unity. Only God. The best we can do is protect it. But only God can create unity. And I know that we live in a world today where there's a, a lot of talk about unity, right? About coming together, about finding common ground. We hear of it both inside and outside the church. And, and I think there's some good discussion there. But here's the reality. 
in and of ourselves, in our efforts to try to create unity and common ground, we will, will always remain unfulfilled. It will be incomplete. Because unity is a gift from God. The best we can do is protect it. So we have to look to Him to see how He makes two groups into one and then live accordingly. So before we look at our passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we want to confess that in and of ourselves, we do not do well playing nicely with other people. We are good at putting labels upon people. We are good at creating lists that need to be followed. We are good at establishing barriers and boundaries that separate us. We are not good at figuring out how to live and work together as a family. And so, Lord, as you speak through your word this morning, would you teach us how to live in the unity that you created? Not something that we can go and, and do for you, but something that you have actually done for us and then instructed us on how to protect it, how to preserve what you've made possible. Where would you make that really clear to us this morning as we look at your word? We pray this in your name. Amen. So turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, just as a reminder, you'll remember that Paul and Barnabas have finished their first missionary journey. They have circled back around revisiting all the churches that were established as a result of that journey. They've gone back into Antioch. They've shared all the good things that God has done. And there was great rejoicing, but there was also a problem. And we're going to read about that beginning in chapter 15, verse 1. And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great, and when Paul and Barnabas, uh, had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. Now, the text only tells us that some men came down from Judea. We really don't know specifically who these men are, but we do know. We do know that they came from the church in Jerusalem. We do know that these are Jewish Christians. Okay, don't miss that. These are Jewish Christians who are having an influence among the Gentile believers in Antioch. And their teaching is very clear. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And as we'll see later on, it's more than just circumcision. It involves keeping the law of Moses. So in a sense, what they're saying is that Gentiles must become Jewish in order to be Christian. But before we go too far and judge these men with evil intent, I think it's important to at least try to understand their perspective because some of what they're saying has a biblical basis to it. It's in the Old Covenant, all right? Let, let me give you an example. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 10, I'm going to read this from the NIV. It's a little easier to understand. It says, beginning in chapter 17, verse 10, God speaking. And he says, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. 
every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you is, is, who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner. Those who are not your offspring are included. Whether born in your household or brought into your household, they must be circumcised. And here's why. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any circumcised male or one who is not circumcised, who has not been a part of that covenant, will be cut off from his people. For he has broken my covenant. So you kind of understand a little bit of where these people are coming from. It's a very clear command in Scripture. So let's just assume for a minute that they didn't have evil intention, that there was good intentions behind this. Maybe they really did want the Gentiles to find protection under these covenant promises of the Old Testament. But apparently, according to verse 2, Paul and Barnabas did not see this the same way. In fact, it says that there was great dissension and debate. What they're saying in those words, that this was no small disagreement. It was an emotion-filled discussion. Maybe even to the point of raised voices, pointing fingers. I bet there were people that were so frustrated that they just had to walk out of the room. And at the end of the day, they could not come to a consensus. They could not find agreement on this issue. And to their credit, everyone realized that this issue was too important to leave unresolved. Nobody was willing to say, okay, let's just, let's just agree to disagree on this. They said, no, this issue is way too important to leave unresolved. They would not tolerate division in the early church, because it would have been so easy to just stop the conversation at this point, agree to disagree, and the Jewish Christians can go start the first church of the circumcision. I don't know. But that's not what they did. They all agreed to go to Jerusalem to discuss this issue with the apostles and the elders. And even that's important. The apostles and the elders. By this time, there is a shared governance within the Christian church. Remember when Paul and Barnabas went back to all the churches, what did they do? They appointed elders in every church to give them a sense of, of shared governance, of a responsibility within the church body. This is not an apostolic succession, not a pope or a pastoral president. This instead was an issue that would ultimately be resolved by the church and its leadership. Let's look at how that takes place in verse 3. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they, being Paul and Barnabas, were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, uh, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and, where, and, and, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all that God had done with them. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them, and here's the other part, to direct them to observe the law of Moses. 
think it's interesting that Paul and Barnabas didn't let this issue rob their joy. It says that on their way to Jerusalem, as they went from town to town, they reported all that God had done. Instead of focusing their attention on how their opponents were wrong, they let everybody know why God is so good. And it caused so much rejoicing in the church because everybody was so encouraged to see people of every nation coming to faith in one person, their Savior, Jesus Christ. When they arrived in Jerusalem, it says that the Christian Pharisees were ready to make their case. Did you hear that? There are Pharisees who believed in Jesus. But the problem was they couldn't break free from the requirements of the law. It was Jesus plus something. Fill in the blank. Again, I I think it's important to, to put yourself in their shoes to understand their perspective. By the age of 13, these men had the first five books of the Bible memorized. I didn't say the first five verses of the Bible. I said they had the first five books of the Bible memorized by age 13. They went on to get a Ph.D. in biblical studies. But now... What you're trying to tell us is that these untrained Gentiles who have none of this background, none of this understanding, can just walk into the faith? In the minds of the Pharisee, that hardly seems fair. I had an experience in recent weeks where I could kind of relate to this perspective. Went to a wedding of a very close family friend, and the wedding was officiated by someone who was ordained through an online course. They went on during the message to quote all the hidden meanings of the Hebrew language. And I was slightly offended. I thought, how does this work? You know, I I spent years and money and time going to school to learn how to be a pastor. I gave up a career in healthcare to learn how to be a pastor. And somebody's just going to walk in with an online certificate that hardly seems fair. So I can kind of relate to the Pharisees on this one. It really can't be that easy, can it? But that question exposes the real heart of the issue. Because the heart of the issue is not these Jewish men who want to protect the Gentiles within the covenant. The heart of the issue is pride. just not fair for them to get in so easy when I had to work so hard. See the issue? Look how it continues in verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into the matter. And after they had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days of God, he made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles there should, they should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did with us. And he made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith, just like ours. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? 
by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. And all the multitudes kept silent. (laughs) I want to pause there because I want to recognize what Peter's saying here. The first thing that happens is he didn't say as he stepped forward, listen up, people, here's what I think. What did he do? He stepped forward and he says, listen up, people, here's what God did. And that's important because what God did was not what Peter expected him to do. God had to speak to Peter in a vision to instruct him to go to a place he would have never gone on his own. In fact, when he walked into the house of Cornelius, one of the first things that came out of his mouth was, you all know that it is unlawful for a Jew to enter into a Gentile home. He was in a place he would have never been had God not told him to go. And he goes on to tell the story of how God led him to the house of Cornelius. And even as we read in the scripture, when he was sharing the gospel, when he was telling them the story of faith in Christ alone, that as the words were coming out of his mouth, says the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Peter tells the crowd exactly what he said back in chapter 10 when he said, God revealed in that moment there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile when it comes to faith. God broke down the barrier and what were two groups have now become one. It's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but we are one in Christ Jesus. See, he said their hearts were cleansed by faith, just like ours. So why in the world would we want to burden them with a list of rules that not even we are able to keep, much less our fathers who preceded us? Why would we want to add burden to them if salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone? He says, look, The law is not the problem. We are. We are. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is right. But we are selfish. And we are sinful. And God never gave us the law to justify our righteousness. He gave us a law to help expose our sin. To reveal to us how we don't measure up, nor can we. Because no one can keep the law. Following a list of rules is not how you get to heaven. In fact, we need a way of salvation that does not depend on us. We need Jesus. We need Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Peter goes on and says, look, there's not a person in this room, whether Jew or Gentile, that is not equally dependent upon the grace of God. And did you notice the response at the beginning of verse 12? It says the emotion-filled debate went silent. Why did it go silent? Because everyone in the room knew Peter was right. There was nothing else to say. Now look at verse 12. 
And the multitudes kept silent. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simon, speaking of Peter, has related uh, how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I, he's speaking of God here, I, God, will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And here's the result that all the Gentiles who call upon my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from old. After Peter finished speaking, Paul and Barnabas step up. And again, they didn't talk about their own opinions. They just said, let me just tell you what God's done. And they begin to share stories of that first missionary journey and all the ways that God has worked. And it says in particular, they talked about the miracles that were performed. Perhaps like the one we talked about last week, the man who was born lame, who immediately got up and walked. You see, these miracles were evidence of divine authority. It was like God's stamp of approval on the message that was being preached. It tells us that after Paul and Barnabas shared their stories, then James steps forward. Now, James would have kind of been like the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church. I'm sure many of the people who were there that day involved in this debate were a part of his congregation. In fact, we know that the ones who originally stirred this up to begin with came from his church. And so he's got some skin in the game on this issue. So he goes back to Peter's testimony. And what James does is incredibly important. Because everything that's been done up to this point are people recalling and recounting all that God has done. They're sharing from their personal experiences the ways in which God has done good works beforehand and they've just walked right in the middle of them. Paul and Barnabas talk about their first missionary journey. Peter talks about Cornelius. But here's what James does. This is important. He connects the works of God with the Word of God. Did you hear that? He connects the very clear evidence of God's work with the very clear testimony of God's Word. Notice in verse 15, he says that the prophets, there's an S there, it's plural, it's more than one. He's saying there is a shared agreement among the prophets. And even though he may quote uh, Amos in this passage, he represents a multitude of prophets who have said the same thing. In fact, let me give you an example of one in Zechariah. This is what Zechariah has to say that is a mirror image of what Amos says. And he says in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 11, And they reported to the angel of the Lord. That's not the one, it's 2.11. Uh, let's see. Here it is. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. What Amos has said, what Zechariah is talking about 
is that one day the people of God will extend beyond the nation of the, of the Jews into every nation of the world. Okay? What the prophets all agree upon is that the message of God's salvation will extend not just to the Jews, but through the Jews into every nation in the world. Now, it will not replace the Jewish people, but it will expand the people of God to not just exclusively include the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. In fact, as we see in that passage, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the new people of God will be known as the church. James is saying, the promises of old explain this new work of God. Because God is only doing what he always said he would do. Look at verse 19. Therefore, as James is speaking, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God through faith in Christ from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things that are contaminated by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, what is from blood. For Moses, uh, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath, talking about Jews in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brethren. The entire Jerusalem church was involved in this discussion, but it was the leaders who stepped forward who helped make the final decision. And ultimately, it was a God-directed decision. A conclusion based on the evidence of God's hand as affirmed by the truth of God's word. A decision, according to verse 22, that seemed good. Listen to who? The apostles, to the elders, to the whole church. There is unity. Because God has made that possible. But they go on and they ask for four things to protect unity that God has created. Four things. One, abstain from things sacrificed to idols. And namely, they're speaking of food here. Abstain from fornication, abstain from animals that have been strangled or where the blood is not drained. And we look at that list and we think, gosh, that seems kind of a strange list. But in reality, every one of those things listed are tied to the worship of pagan idols. So animals that were sacrificed were strangled. The blood was not drained out. The, then it was served for food. And people would buy it in the market. The, the fornication is talking about temple prostitution. Again, a part of pagan worship. This was a decision that seemed good to so many because it was right in the eyes of God. It was basically saying, we need to do this so that we ensure that the world sees that we worship one God alone. That there are no other gods before Him. And we will not confuse that message by involving ourselves that go in, in, in things that are, are tied to pagan worship, tied to the worship of idols, because we want them to know that whether Jew or Gentile, we serve in one God alone. 
which would have required people to set aside their pride, their preferences, and ultimately submit to the truth of God. And I want you to notice that their requests were not a new set of rules, okay? They were not making up a, a new set of four commandments, a new set of rules or lists to follow. Instead, these were guidelines for protecting unity in this new people of God we know as the church, okay? People were, who come from every nation, who come from all different kinds of cultures. And, and in order to protect unity, to not be an offense to your brother or sister in Christ, there are certain things that we would all agree are important to avoid so we don't confuse the message of the gospel of faith through Christ alone. It says in verse 23 that they sent some men from the Jerusalem church particularly Judas and a man named Silas, who would go on to join Paul in future missionary journeys. But they were to go as representatives from Jerusalem, along with Paul and Barnabas, to show the unity of this decision. And you'll notice in verse 31 that when they gave this report to the church in Antioch, look what the result was. They rejoiced because they were encouraged that there's not a list. It really is Jesus plus nothing. Now, despite all the difficulties and the persecution that the early church faced, I want to suggest to you this morning that this threat of division here in chapter 15 was the greatest danger of all. Because as we've seen, the persecution only fueled the spread of the gospel, didn't it? When they were run out of one town, they went to the next. But what happened? They took the gospel with them. And they shared the gospel with that new group of people. But this issue of division would have caused that development to come to a screeching halt. It would have become a barrier to belief. And I am just wonder, as we think about this morning, are we willing to fight for unity in this same way? And I realize that the world we live in is a very different place than the world back then. There are so many divisions in our world, both inside and outside the church. It is hard to know where to begin. Right? And so let me try to make this really simple. I'm thoroughly convinced that we don't create unity. We protect unity. Our goal is to preserve what God has made possible. So let me give you what I would consider three barriers to preserving unity in the church. Okay, you ready? Labels, lists, and doctrinal laxity. Okay, we're going to walk through those, but I want you to write them down. Labels, lists, and doctrinal laxity. Okay, turn back to chapter 15, verse 5. Let me read the beginning of verse 5 again. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up. Now, let's be honest. How many of you knew that there was such a thing as a Christian Pharisee? It's like an oxymoron, isn't it? It's kind of hard to put those two together. All right, let me make it a little more relevant. How many of you believe there's such a thing as a Christian Democrat? Many of us would look at that and say, it's an oxymoron. I don't think that exists. 
we have to be careful not to let our labels become a barrier to unity. We should never, never put anyone in a category that excludes them from the grace of God, whether it be political, whether it be social, whether it be racial, ethnic, cultural. There is no boundary. There is no limit to God's love for the world. And so if that's his perspective, we should not change others' opinion of that. We have to be careful of our labels. We have to be careful of our lists. In our elder discussion a couple of weeks ago, Mark did a great job of illustrating his point about salvation. And one of the things that he did is he took a a piece of fishing line. You couldn't even see it at first until he pointed to you. It was a little small piece of fishing line that dropped from the ceiling down to the floor. And he left it up there during the whole time he was talking. Everybody was kind of beginning to notice it was very vague. Is that a piece of, is that, why is that up there? And then at one point in the discussion, he says, let's talk about salvation. And this line right here is the division point. On this side is darkness. On this side is light. When someone puts their faith in Christ, they move from darkness to light. Okay, imagine that piece of string, little piece of thread, barely perceptible. Darkness, light. Not progressively over time, darkness, light. Instant. Darkness, light. I think sometimes we turn that imperceptible fishing line into a six-lane highway, making it difficult for people to cross to the other side of what it means to have faith in Christ alone because of all the things we do to front-load the gospel so that they check off a certain, things, a certain number of things on the list. It's almost, if you're old enough, it's like the game Frogger, right? It's what you were thinking about, wasn't it? Yeah, that's what I thought. Just trying to get to the other side. You got all these obstacles in your back and forth. How do I get there? Darkness, light. They must repent. They must regret. They must confess. They must grieve. Darkness, light. I believe all those things are true, but not as a condition of faith. It is the response of faith. It is the evidence of faith. Darkness, light. Not progressively over time. It's an instantaneous. We have been rescued from the domain of darkness and instantly transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is Jesus plus nothing. Don't make this complicated. Jesus plus nothing. Darkness, light. Let's be careful about our labels. Let's be careful about our lists. But please don't hear me say that every man can do what is right in their own eyes. As long as you claim to believe in Jesus, do whatever you want to do. That's not helpful. Because it's absolutely not true. The Bible says that if we belong to Christ, that we die to ourselves. And that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And what that tells me is that my goal in life is to align my heart with His will. 
so that ultimately I trust in Him way more than I trust myself. I believe we see way more disunity in our world today because of doctrinal laxity than we do with doctrinal clarity. A belief system that says all roads lead to heaven is incredibly confusing. Especially when you look at the words of Jesus when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Me. We don't find unity when everyone goes their own way. That's confusion. Unity in the church is based on a mutual agreement of an ultimate authority. Did you hear that? A mutual agreement of an ultimate authority. In our passage, it says the entire church gathered for this discussion, and there was no shortage of opinions. (laughs) There was all kinds of debate and dissension, and at the end of the day, they could not come to a consensus. They could not find an agreement. They could not create unity. At least not until the God-ordained leaders who led and understood and helped the church come to an agreement of how God was at work and how God's word affirmed that truth. Only then did they find unity that God had made possible because it's what he said he would always do. Unity was preserved because of doctrinal clarity. A mutual submission to the authority of Scripture. Which brings us to three important qualities for protecting unity. Now, we've talked about what can disrupt it, things that we need to avoid. Here's what we need to pursue, and the first one is probably the most important. Humility. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak, slow to anger. Yeah, there's going to be debates and dissensions, but we can be civil. We can have meaningful conversations. We can respect one another as we work through those issues together. We need to consider the needs of the other person as more important than our own, even if that means that we give up some of our own preferences in order to create a safe place for someone else. Okay, and that can be really simple. At the same time, really hard. It could be as simple as sitting in a different place on Sunday morning every single Sunday. Because here's what happens when you do that. I love the fact that you've got assigned seating. I don't know who did that, but it's impressive, right? You can't do that in a school classroom, but man, we knock it out of the park around here. But what happens is, is when you sit in that same cluster, those are the only people you ever get to know. There's some people over here that these people don't know yet. And there's some people over here, and you see what I'm saying? If we can just give up some of our preferences, it would be interesting how God might use that to build our community. Okay? It can be as simple as where you sit on Sunday morning. It can be as challenging as the songs we sing during worship. Some of us like hymns. Some of us like some of the more contemporary choruses. We try to do a lot to to mix in both. And I struggled with this when I first started coming to Melanie Park. I was a young college student. I had in my mind the way this was supposed to look. And, you know, I just got the hymns. I don't know. Don't get it. I tell you what, though, here's the truth of the matter. When I get in a hard place these days and I find trying to find words to put into a prayer, guess what I start doing? Singing hymns. And it really changed my heart one day when we were singing a hymn. 
and I looked around at the faces of, in particular, the older generation. And I mean, it was bright and it was beautiful. And I thought to myself, how could I ever take that away from them? So let's sing them. And let's let the truth of the song, whether they're hymns or choruses, resound with the truth of the gospel. And I promise you, Brian works hard to ensure that every song we sing lines up with Scripture so the message is the same week after week after week. So it has to happen with humility. It has to happen with giving up your preferences for the good of someone else. And let me add one more thing. It needs to happen with vulnerability, okay? You see, we're people who are naturally inclined to make assumptions, all right? We look around us and we look at another marriage and we think, gosh, their marriage is perfect. They never struggle. They never have difficulty. It's so hard for us. It's so easy for them. And, and we look at another family and think, oh, look at those kids. They're perfect. I mean, do they ever do anything wrong? They're good in school. They're good athletes. They're very respectful. Man, if we could just have a family like that. But here's the reality. Those assumptions are rarely, rarely true. And the only way that we know that they're really true is if we're willing to be vulnerable and tell our story. If we're willing to share some of the struggles because there is nothing that makes you feel more connected to another person than to know that they struggle just like you do. That they're having difficulties with things that you struggle with and you're not alone. That helps, doesn't it? That's why brown bag lunch is so significant in the life of this church because these women are getting up and they're not just telling stories of how God had redeemed them, but there was a struggle that preceded the redemption. And they're telling the story. And it's creating unity because they're willing to be vulnerable. So be humble. Be vulnerable. Be committed to telling your story. Put away the labels and the list and open up your Bible and open up your home. Be encouraged by just talking about the good things that God has done. And that's a long list, people. That is a long list of the good things that God has done. And if that's what we do, then it will have the same result as it did in our passage. It will cause us to rejoice and be encouraged because that's the God we serve and he is full of goodness. Amen? In the end, our unity revolves around one important principle. Salvation through faith in Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing. Amen? So let's protect the unity that God has made possible. We don't create it. We protect it. That's what he's called us to do. So let's stand and sing together, please. one people through one faith and one person saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Only God can create a unity of every tribe and every tongue and every nation and make them one. So may we be diligent to protect what he made possible through the praise and glory of his name. Amen? Let's do it. Have a great day.